I think it would be important to know that, oh yeah, sometimes people do shit because it's the thing to do. Not because they were trying to make money. Right. Not because they are trying to be famous. Not because they wanted to be in a museum. Some they did it because it was the thing to do to feel connected to other human beings and to continue to celebrate the new idea. It will never stop. Punk will never die. It won't be called punk necessarily. It'll never die. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I explore the theme of music and the role it plays in our lives, how we remember the music we listened to when we were younger, and how our relationship to it transforms over time. On a more general level, this is also an exploration of creative integrity and how to best maintain it. And to unpack these themes, I talked to this guy. Rolf Potts, it's Ian McKay here. Um... 6 o'clock, Monday, May 21st. My apologies. I've been doing this podcast for the better part of a year now, and I've interviewed some amazing people, including some of my travel writing role models. But I'll confess, none of these interviews generated the same starstruck excitement I felt when I got a phone message from Ian Mackay, who's probably best known as the front man of a band called Fugazi and the co-founder of Discord Records in Washington, D.C., now, if you already know who Ian Mackay is, you can probably skip straight to the interview since his reputation as a pioneer of do-it-yourself punk rock precedes him. But while Fugazi had a huge influence on an entire generation of music, most notably the so-called grunge movement of the 1990s, the band never made videos for MTV, rarely if ever appeared on commercial radio, and refused interviews with major music magazines like Spin and Rolling Stone. While major label bands like Pearl Jam and Nirvana publicly agonized over the notion of authenticity in the face of fame, Fugazi embodied musical authenticity, releasing all of their albums for $10 or less on their own label in D.C., refusing to sell merchandise like t-shirts, and playing $5 live shows at all-ages venues around the country. Fugazi was, in short, about music and the creative community of music, not hype or stardom or the mindless pursuit of material success. In fact, the rock journalist Michael Azarad wrote that if Henry David Thoreau had managed a rock band, it probably would have been run a lot like Fugazi. But before I get ahead of myself here, I'll admit that my initial interest in Fugazi wasn't sparked by its ethos, but by a certain moment in the summer of 1990, when a friend I was working with in Colorado played me a dubbed cassette tape that featured this song. these years later, in an age when we have digital access to almost every song ever recorded, it's hard to describe just how affecting this song, Fugazi's Waiting Room, was when I first heard it. 1990 is generally considered a low-ebb year for popular music. This was when lame corporate acts like Warrant and Vanilla Ice hit it big. And nothing I was hearing on the radio compared to the raw and original energy I felt when I heard Waiting Room play for the first time. Fugazi was one of a handful of bands around that time that changed the way I listened to music, and once I realized there was so much more out there than what I heard on the radio and read about in glossy magazines, it changed my way of thinking in a way that went beyond music. It was as if I realized that everywhere there was this hidden world of abundance, these new sounds and new ideas and new ways of walking through the world, that I hadn't known existed because I hadn't bothered to look. 
I began to actively seek out the music that excited me, sometimes traveling back in time to find bands I'd missed out on years before. This is actually something I tried to describe to Ian Mackay before our formal interview began. Yeah, I sort of I sort of went backwards. It's funny how we come into music at different times, right? And so I sort of had to do my back research and figure out what I was listening to. Understood. I always tell people about this being at um, when Black Flag stayed. The first time they came to Washington was February of '81, and they stayed at my parents' house for like three days. And I said, "So what do you guys listen to on the road?" And I go, oh, "You know, Black Sabbath, Stooges, and you know something." I was like, "Oh," and now I'm thinking like. Three Stooges? Like, I had no <laughs> idea who the Stooges at all. Really? Music, like anything else, is once you once you start to study it, like, you, once you stop taking, like, the force-fed version of it and you actually start to seek it, it just takes you into crazy... Like, there's a million tributaries. And I've done several podcasts now that touch on music in some way or another, but I've never made much music of my own. I'm mainly just a listener and an enthusiast. So it was fun to hear a rock icon like Ian Mackay talk about music not as an expert necessarily, but as someone who simply loves to listen to it. Our interview took place in what is known as the Discord House on the Virginia side of suburban D.C. For years, this modest wooden house was home to Discord Records. It's also where Ian and his musical collaborators lived, going back to his first hardcore punk bands, the Teen Idols, and perhaps most notably Minor Threat. It now serves as a kind of de facto monument to an archive of DIY punk and post-punk music. Thanks to this archive, you can now go to discord.com and download any live concert Fugazi ever played. I'll link to that in the show notes. Part of the thrill of visiting Discord House came when Ian showed me old concert flyers and played me old practice recordings in the very room where Waiting Room, the song that had changed the way I listened to music all those years ago, had been written. At one point during the tour of the house, Ian showed me a collection of letters various people had written him over the years. This is my, like, complicated is crazy people. Crazy letters, okay. which I have a lot of, and you know, friends, um, bands writing me, just correspondence. The one that people get a kick out of is this one. 15, I'm looking for a new can't find anyone in Springfield. Right. I'm trying to guess. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. That's awesome. It's magic marker. Right. Time right. to call after <laughs> school, before bedtime. Right. That is... Awesome. Ian was showing me was a letter from a 15-year-old Dave Grohl, who would later go on to find fame with Nirvana and the Foo Fighters, but as a Virginia teenager, wanted nothing more than to meet Ian Mackay and release his band's album on Discord Records. In a weird way, Ian has, over the years, achieved his greatest mainstream recognition less for his songs, so much as the fact that his musical integrity has famously earned the fierce respect of multi-platinum-selling rock stars. Not just Dave Grohl, but Michael Stipe and Joan Jett and Joe Strummer of The Clash and Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam, who once showed up to an MTV interview with the word Fugazi written on his hand in Magic Marker. As a side note to all of this, Ian happens to be best friends with spoken word performer and former Black Flag vocalist Henry Rollins. And if you've heard Rollins on podcasts like Joe Rogan or Ari Shafir or Mark Marin, Henry often mentions his friendship with Ian Mackay. As it happens, Henry and Ian's friendship predates their punk rock notoriety and goes back to their days of shooting BB guns and listening to Cheech and Chong records when they were 11-year-old elementary school kids in D.C. Henry Rollins comes up from time to time as I talk to Ian, but our conversation mainly explores the meaning of music, both on a personal level and on a wider level of how it's understood in the context of history, 
and how for every official understanding of music that you might find in places like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, there are tens of thousands of more meaningful narratives that reflect how we experience music in real time. Our conversation took place over iced tea in the kitchen of the Discord house earlier this summer. Let's listen in. In the early 90s, an authenticity discourse entered the discussion, you know, because of the idea that Nirvana was reinfusing punk into popular music and that uh, suddenly intent mattered, right? And I think that's part of what rose this, the Fugazi ship, right? Because Fugazi stood out as this band. Uh, authenticity is a com complicated word, you know, but uh, a principled band, you know. So suddenly that idea was popular as part of the wider art. Or right? maybe it was the other way around. Maybe it became a popular idea because we were a band that did that. Well, so yeah. we were actually... I mean, that's what Michael we are much bigger. Book. Yeah, we are much... I mean, we were much bigger than Nirvana before they signed. I mean, right. we were already sold, you know, I think Peter had sold a, you know, a couple hundred thousand records or something. So Did it before? Oh, yeah. Before, before yes. Nirvana broke, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, well, the Our Band Could Be Your Life, yeah. that book. I've never read it, but I know it, of course. Yeah. Well, it sort of makes that assertion, you know, right. that without, um, you know, Fugazi and Minor Threat and Husker Du and all these other bands, then that created this moment that... Right. Me. But, I, you know, I, I, always, I don't really... In my mind, all roads didn't lead to Nirvana. Okay. I just find that is specious, and I don't really, I just, ah, you know, I don't, I don't think about it like that. To me, it was just, it was a phenomenon. I mean, I, you know, there are people I knew, and I'm, and it just, again, advertising works. Yeah. Um, I didn't see that as, a, I don't know. It didn't really, I, I, you know, I, I don't equate sales with. Um, I don't. I guess I don't think it was like that. Yeah, this is clearly this. Finally, it all came together with this perfect moment. I just don't buy into that. I actually think the most perfect music was made for me was in the late seventies by band that sold a few hundred copies of a record. What's an example? You know, like the Black Flag, Nervous Breakdown single. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a perfect record, you know, and it's totally trashy sounding, but um, that was a profoundly important piece of music. And they probably sold, they sold, you know, I don't know how many copies of that single, maybe 10 or 20,000 now over the 40 years since it's come out, but um, maybe, I don't know if they sold that many, maybe it's come out in other versions, but that, that was a record that, you know, just using them as an example, was so illuminating like to hear it and like oh like this is happening like somewhere else not just with us you know or the bat brains i mean who are the most important band for me in 1980 then you have a record out they were the most important band who put out their record they put their first record out on their own okay we actually henry and i lent them money to put out their first record huh. then they did a <clears throat> second release on this roar cassette it was this I can't remember the Roar, R-I-O-R. I can't remember what it stands for anymore. Roar? Yeah. But um, that, it was out in New York. And that's they did the cassette. Then they got signed. They did a record like Rick, with Rick Ocasek producing or huh. something. It was some weird like that. But, um, but the point being that those, the, like the single, there's only a thousand copies of that. 
that record was hugely influential. The first Bad Brain single, okay. massively important. Um, you know, I think the thing about what I'm interested in and I'm always interested in is the new idea. And if you think about the new idea of any given moment, yeah, but any in any the new idea that, right. that to me punk is a is people say what is punk? It's not a sound for me. It's not like a style of music. It's not a look. It's not even really an attitude. Although I see I mean, it could be any one of those things, but for me, punk is the free space. It's the place where new ideas can be presented without having to hew to profit motives only like which is what people in almost all the other arenas when you get into it there's always someone has to make money so then they, that perverts the new idea because the problem with new ideas is they have no audience because they've not been thought of yet right so there's no audience punk for me was the when i got involved with it it was like the most recent incarnation of a of a of a of a um, a community or a scene that gathered to be presented with new ideas. So jazz was that, blues was that, and rock was that, and hip hop was that, and beat was that, and folk was that. But it was people who came and said, "Like, what do you got?" Um, and those were small gatherings. And if you think about like the really huge like changing thing in the history of the world like most of the really profound ideas were not thought of in rooms with 25 or 30,000 people you know there's only a few people i mean how many people were that damn last dinner right right 12 right you know it wasn't like 10,000 that was apparently that had an effect on the world that that little gathering so i feel like those are the kind of things that's what i'm interested in I don't really care about the bigger number. Like, you know, I'm always interested in, like, maybe what later on led to that number. Well, I have a convoluted question for you that maybe can pull all this together, and I'm really curious to know what you think. Because I'm interested in the archiving aspect of what you do, and then also in the idea that, um, you know, like, like a Black Flag single can be so meaningful, you know, a 70s one versus... The, the pop nirvana moment later. So the, um, the convoluted right. question is... Well, it might be an age issue, but go ahead. Right. It feels like when you decided... There was sort of an archivist instinct behind wanting to record the Teen Idols. Of course. Um, because of that, everything else... You have Discord records. You know, the archiving impulse in its own small way right. led Documentation. to... Documentation. Right. Um, we've just been upstairs and seen all of the very meticulous documentation you've done. Um, Along with people, friends, and help. Yeah, correct. Yeah, right. you as a metaphor for thank you. For, I'm just for trying to. Be, I'm just trying to give credit where credit is. Absolutely, good. absolutely. Yeah. I work with a lot of people, and they've been. Yeah. You know, they're without them, I couldn't be where I am. So, um, and then actually, Woodstock was a very well documented, very well documented, yeah. and very, and, and I think that logistically fascinating. So, the fact that they keep talking about it, I'm always happy. I get to read more about it. Yeah. You know? But but like narrative shrinks, right? It simplifies. We don't have time for the whole sprawling story, right? Uh, and well, so, you'd only be able to do that if you relived it, and that's impossible, right? Um, like, what do we really remember now of music from the eighteen nineties or the nineteen thirties, or or yeah, very. I mean, eighteen nineties, very very little. Nineteen. Yeah. I mean, what exists is what. There's no recordings really from eighteen ninety. I mean, there are some very very obscure things. 
Well, Lomax recorded Jelly Roll Morton singing some old Bordello songs. Um, right, okay, but very, very little. Exactly. You know, very little. Yeah. I mean, this um, is a, I know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, just in terms of that, which I think, you know, there's cylinders, mm-hmm. which are precursors to vinyl, the discs. Right. The way they worked is that the stylus was vibrated by a speaker mm-hmm. and, or whatever, whatever. It's, it's just basically. By a wax. The, right. So the column was, the cylinder would spin and it would just burn the groove into, because record is just a groove wrapped around itself, right? It's right. a straight line, but it goes in a spiral. On a cylinder, it just wraps around the cylinder the same way. Um, and I was at the Library of Congress in the audio department talking to this one of the bosses down there. And I said, we we're looking at all these old cylinders. And I said, were there ever any hits? Huh. Like, how did that work? Because they would do, you know, when you go record, you make a cylinder. And I said, and he goes, oh, yeah, we have those one song that was a pretty big hit. called I think it's called The Laughing Song. Um, and I said, well, how many copies did they sell? And he's like, oh, you know, probably 10 to thousands. And I suddenly thought, about it, like, wait a minute, how did they mass produce that? Because vinyl is like, you get, you have stampers and you, you know, it's a press, but how would you do that with a cylinder? Did he, did he know? Yeah. The guy would go in every day and play the song over and over and over and over. Every version is a unique version. Okay. Whoa. Now, maybe they might have daisy-chained them. They may have uh-huh. two or three cylinder machines running at the same time. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But still, re- re- he recorded uh-huh. the song over and over and over and over. So if you have uh-huh. two copies, there would very well be two different versions of the song. That's so really interesting. And, if you, and you can find it on YouTube. And it's an insane song. It's like he's like, <laughs> I mean, can you imagine going to work every day and doing that song over and over and over and over and over and over to fulfill the market demand? Yeah. That's that's some tenacity. And that must have been a sea change too, because it used to just be sheet music. You could make right. make your fortune writing a, a ditty and selling the sheet music. Right. right? Um, uh, so anyway, you're saying about documentation. Well, there's documentation and narrative, and it seems like narrative is... In, maybe there's no answer to the question that I'm so convolutedly trying to get at, but there's narrative, there's a way things are popularly understood, and there's smaller, more specialized understandings of what music was, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't listen to Black Flag in... 1992 you know i was listening to well i've I've been listening to fugazi for about three years by then so there's sort of a narrative of how i remember that music um and then i have sort of a a backwards journey that went from fugazi to earlier bands that i'd somehow missed in my mullet and classic rock radio days in kansas um i mean do you have any sense for um what the archive will become, how it will serve a narrative eventually. Is that the question you were going to ask? Well, that's... Because <laughs> you never even got to the convoluted question, I don't think. Yeah. Or is that the question? Well, I can, I can dig into the convolutions. Yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to think that, like, obviously your understanding of Woodstock is very narrative. It's received, you know. It's, it's, it's through, through the documentary film and through books and, and other people who were there at the time, right? Um, a lot of people who have received like a 15 year olds today will understand the nineties through a received, like there's sort of a sainted understanding of Kurt Cobain, right? 
there's this idea of him maybe even like i grew up at a time where there, there was a sainted conception of Jimi hendrix for example you know the, the person who died young and then um they're sort of understood through their young beautiful sainthood it's funny because i don't think of hendrix as being sainted in the same way cobain was hmm. but i think cobain was really part of his way i think i kind of think it's the way he projected himself but he became emblematic of by the i think the media really thought like, that's like he's like sid vicious or something he became emblematic of a particular era right whereas hendrix I think Hendrix's musical genius was so undeniable, so much more so than Cobain's. Hmm. And Hendrix was from another planet. Take, I mean, that's another guy that I've <laughs> deeply studied and continue to study. Probably my single favorite musician in the world. Huh. And I have studied and studied. I have 40 gigs of bootleg recordings. I mean, I'm fascinated by him. Um, that guy recorded so much. In his brief life, hmm. um, it's just you know hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of studio stuff, um, and his relationship with his instrument was, like, yeah, celestial. But I think that Cobain, I think he became, he was really yeah emblematic or symbol a symbol of a really particular era of what was perceived a disaffection. Um, I'm I'm more ambivalent about it, obviously, sure. because I, 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 it was, I mean, Kurt was clearly super gifted. Um, Grohl played a huge role in that band. Like, if you listen to Bleach, which is the record before, have you done time with that record? I have. I yeah. actually, much like Fugazi, thirteen songs. I discovered it on the back of a right. Tape. So that record is like. I think, you know, people liked that record, but it wasn't like the, a record that blew everybody's mind. Right. But then Nevermind comes along, but with Grohl was in that band. And Grohl had a lot to do, I think, with the writing of that record. Because hmm. his pop sensibility is, I mean, look, he's still doing it, you know. Right. Yeah. And I, it's not to my taste necessarily. I'm just saying that he's clearly, Dave is a musical genius. Um, but I think people, but Kurt was the front person. Yeah. And he was also really complicated guy you know clearly yeah. clearly but, um, so, but, so so i don't know what your convoluted question is right because i'm not sure about documentation nirvana kids in 20 years i don't know what is it all what do you what are we getting at well i guess i'm trying to connect like obviously something happened when you decided to document the teen idols you know it grew into something bigger and now it's sort of a, yeah but it wouldn't have mattered for me you I, think discord would have happened either way no, I'm saying it doesn't matter whether it got bigger or not. I don't, I don't, I don't think of success in terms of numbers. So there's plenty of things I've been involved with that I think are very deeply important right. that most people have never heard of. You know, like I think, like I mentioned Lungfish a couple of times. Right. That's a band who I think we did 11 records with them, but most people don't know them. Right. But yeah. that to me is a band that is profoundly important, or a band called Antelope. Who I think are incredible, or Slant Six, or these are all these bands that were like, I think were. I'm so glad to have been able to document them because they were, um, they were keepers of that flame. You know, they were making it happen. Are those and, all local to DC? They're all DC area. Lungfish are from Baltimore, but we okay. counted them as part of our 
melu. But it's like the black flag thing. A lot of times it's these little records. And it's interesting because it even gets more tiny. Like, for instance, on a regional level, like in Washington, D.C., like the scene here was small. And we, <clears throat> as an engine, we op like what we, the fuel we were burning was the music we were listening to from outside. We'd hear it and we'd absorb it and that would inspire us. Um, are you familiar with Generation X? The band? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so they're a band from England. The singer, Billy Idol. You've heard sure. of Billy Idol. Sure. So He was an MTV star. Right. right. So Billy Idol was sold, you know, he's well known on that, you know, less so now, but very well known guy. Sold millions. He had a song called White Wedding. But prior to that, he was a singer in a punk band called Generation X. And they did, I think, a perfect first. Their first album is absolutely perfect record. It's a great, great record. When he left that band, he and uh, the bass player left. Is that right? The other guys formed a new band called Empire. Okay. And Empire put out a single and an album. did not sell at all like in fact like the story is a legend is that there were so many returns they just melted them all down they just the record died but a few copies made it here and it became like the source material in many ways for us by here you mean dc washington dc okay. the scene are right. my neck of the woods yeah. my scene in washington right like we loved the Empire record and we studied the shit out of that huh. record and it's funny because those guys you know the guys from that band um, uh, Bob Andrews is a guitar player for Generation X and then also an Empire like many years later like like he would have thought of that record as a total I mean most people think of that as an abject failure but for this weird little pocket of kids in Washington, D.C., that record was one of the most sought-after records. I love stuff like that. <laughs> huh. You know, I love that. I love that stuff. And and though we were inspired by that music deeply. And then music we made inspired other bands and so forth. So bands like Nirvana, like... Or Elliot Smith, you just mentioned Heat Miser being like very Fugazi. Yes, yeah. Fugazi was a product. I mean, everybody in the band Fugazi listened to Empire. Interesting. And yet, so the inspiration we received from that, it went in, it was in the ingredient list, right? Yeah. That other people ate. I wonder how far back you can trace, you know. Keeps on going. Yeah. That's the thing, it's a chain. And yeah. that's what I'm interested in. Just from well, actually, a lot. Of, there's been a lot of articles recently um, about the '90s, and they're not really about Cobain, but they just sort of talk about this sea change. They talk very simplistically about the sea change right. that he initiated, right? Right. And so you obviously know that everything that predated Nirvana, right? But there's people right. who they use it as a metaphor now. It's just, right. it's just this truism that illustrates another For point. For a certain segment of society, right. it is true. 
Right. But that segment of society, in my mind, is also the segment of society that says that, you know, Cheesecake Factory is a fancy <laughs> meal. You know, like that's right. just, like, in other words, I'm not try, again, I'm not trying to be denigrating. It's literally, from my point of view, it's like, it's people, it's the same way I might look at, um, like, uh, like you asked me about ballet. I'd say, like, Bolshoi. You know, I don't right. know a damn thing about ballet. Right. So I have the most simplistic grasp. I wouldn't be able to give you the history of ballet. Even jazz. I love the idea of jazz. I'm scared to get near it because that is some deep waters. And forget like classical or so-called classical music. That is deep that I can't, I don't even know where to begin with something like that. Um, but my Melu, I can kind of, I understand enough of it. Yeah. Um, what, I can, what I can tell you about this sort of simplistic notion of history like for instance recently um there was tim burns did his version of the vietnam war thing did you watch that i didn't i watched the stanley carno one years ago uh -huh. but i also grew up with vietnamese kids and i spent time in vietnam okay so, so the i found that and I'm not a big fan of documentary stuff, and I'm not a big fan of Kim Burns necessarily. I'm not. I'm not. I just don't. I didn't look at Civil War. I didn't look at jazz. I didn't. I just. But the Vietnam War had a real effect on me as a kid. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Like I've really affected by it, and so I was, that war was. And I've read more about that war. It's played a huge part of my like Kent State. You know, like all that stuff that was going on was really affected me as a child, and. um my parents went to a church that was anti-war, was very super lefty, and a lot of energy was spent trying to put it into this criminal act. And when the war ended, in my brain, at 12 years old, I thought, that's the end of that. There'll never be another war again. Yeah, yeah. I really thought that because it just seemed so clearly on the face of it insane that people were doing this to other human beings. Um but anyway, I watched that documentary, and I'm sure that people can tear it to pieces for its oversimplification, even though it was like 20 hours long or something. But there was a piece of footage in there, a piece of information that I gathered from that, which was there's a very famous scene of a monk burning Self-immolation, right. yeah. My understanding has always been, and I tell, I say probably 19 out of 20 or 49 out of 50 or 99 out of 100 people's understanding of that was that was an act of protest against the American involvement in the war. And according to the documentary that Ken Burns made, that is not the case. Was it against the local ruler, the local? It was about Diem, this, the, you know, the Catholic... No, president yeah. who was um yeah just raining hell on the buddhists right. and it was a protest about it was an inter you know, it was an intramural problem yeah. it was yeah. about them it was about the issue that was thing i knew nothing about nothing nothing whatsoever and i'm a guy who thought of myself as a student of to some degree i also had no idea that ho chi Minh lived in america i did not know that I also didn't know that in 1941 or 1940 or 41 that the U.S. 
partner with Ho Chi Minh, um, to fight the Japanese. Japanese. Yes. Like, the point is, like, I'm not, I wasn't like, I didn't go to college, so I didn't study deeply any of this stuff. But I thought that I had a pretty good grasp on the situation. I didn't, right? I learned things. I, I learned things in that documentary that I just had not been aware of. That is, but it's the way it is with, with our, our, in life that you can't be all this little minutia. It's hard to stay, so it's easier to boil it down. In the case of punk history, you know, in New York, there was the Ramones, and then the Sex Pistols, and then Nirvana, right? Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. and for those of us, <laughs> well, I'm just wondering if this is a, a weapon against, you know, if this is a. Well, it is in a way, but that's not, when you, and you just said that you're gesturing just, up to my archive room, and. It's not, it's not a weapon against that necessarily. What I think, it, what I realized is that there's very little evidence of people being able to create on their own outside of the machinery. Yes, right, which is, which is key, right, which is a key, right, part of like, your whole right, because the, the the record industry, record industry has created a situation in which they apparently are responsible for and the owners of music and music history. So if you think about every year, the best song, the best record, those awards are named every time, right? Almost always, except for maybe, the, you know, the occasional sort of street cred move on their part in recent years, the, those songs or bands or records are on major labels or distributed by major labels. When you think about the, the time that you and I are talking, the number of songs that are being written, that have been written or played around the world, what are the chances that every great the best song every year. The best song is always on a major label. It's it's not true. It's they're they're saying in our in our ecosystem this is the best song, and the best song generally has to do with sales. Right. 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 As an aside, have you? I think you're starting to ask my question. You're starting to address the question I couldn't quite ask. Have you been to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? No. Okay. I went there last last summer. I was I drove my nephew to college, and on the way back, I watched a baseball game and went to the Rock Hall of Fame. It was a really weird place to be, in part because of what you were just saying, right. is that the history is written by these successes. By them, right. Actually, some of Jimi Hendrix's drawings were there. He drew right. pictures of football players when he was right. a kid. Yeah. Oregon Ducks, USA. So did I. Another reason that Hendrix and I are very similar. No, but, right. no, but, right. but, but here's the deal. Um, but, but I was looking for evidence, just to finish the thought, I was yeah. looking for evidence of these local scenes that were meaningful to me. And they did have, like, I, I was more of an Oregon music guy than a Kansas music guy, because right. I, I had a mullet and listened to U2 and Van Halen on radio, right, mm -hmm. when I was in Kansas. And then I discovered Fugazi and other bands. And then I was more, I, I traveled backwards and was going to Heat Miser shows in Portland. Right. And so I was looking for the Heat Misers. And right. uh, in a way, it was fun to see, like, the Seattle stuff. They've They've sort of reverse engineered the lo localness of Seattle because of Nirvana and those other bands so that you'll see you men or whatever represented in the Rock Hall of Fame. Right. Um, but yeah, there wasn't. I mean, maybe eventually 
like a lot of cool music has gone through Portland since, you know, um, Frank Black moved there and the pavement or whatever, you know. Um, and so I guess that is... What about like the Wipers? Well, the, yeah. What about the Wipers? Who are like, like the band that made the difference, right? Another band I or, discovered in reverse. Or Dead Moon. Calamity Jane. Right, yeah. Calamity Jane. I, I, yeah, used to, right. I used to see Dead Moon and I just thought they were strange. They yeah. seemed so old to me. They were strange and old. Yeah. <clears throat> The way cooler than, than Fred Cole's a genius yeah. in his history. You know, he used to sing in this band called The Weeds in the '60s, a garage rock band. Okay, had yeah. a great record. The guy's he's just a life for that dude. He's dead now, rest his soul. But right, um, no, yeah, Dead Moon was cooler than cool. Um, so the thing is, I think the point for me is not. I understand that that's their history. Like, I also don't expect my stuff to be hung up in the NASCAR Hall of Fame either. <laughs> that's the way I think about it. Yeah. The major label industry is like, that's not what I'm involved with. They don't own music. Music was here before they were. They're a bottling company. You know, other rivers run. Like, there's different springs. Not everybody has to drink from their fucking, their manufactured water. Agreed, and that's why it's exciting. I mean, that's why I was sold. Waiting Room wasn't finished by the time I knew I wanted, that I knew I was a Fugazi fan. You know, right. I was so stultified by all this shit I've been listening to. Nothing right. against it, you know, no, it's a lot of the same thing. I um, understand. And that was at a time, there were some other bands that did the same thing. Um, that, that, because the Cheesecake Factory ruled music, <laughs> that, was, that was why right. I could get excited. I had an, an emotional relationship to waiting room before it was done before right. i finished listening to it for the first time so there's institutional memory and then there's whatever is happening up here um does does institutional so memory talking about, talking i'm talking about upstairs okay, this is yeah, an audio yeah, podcast archive room okay um and again this is the question that maybe i'll never be able to to, to ask clearly um well here's let me try to answer get into this thing about what's going on up what why i'm doing this right which, which I'm okay, I guess about. we should explain. Like, what he keeps referring to, or what you keep referring to. Sorry, I've talked to the audience for a second. What yeah. you're referring to is the fact that I, my, I have a room, which was my bedroom, by the way. Um, I lived in that room for 21 years, and um, I actually wrote "Waiting Room" upstairs in that room. That no was kidding, in that room. That was where I wrote it. Um, in that room, uh, now there's no bed. There's tape decks. There's tapes there's photos and documents it's an archive and it's and it's pretty well organized you know it's getting more work to do but compared to most most collections pretty well organized um and a lot of people have asked me why are you doing this like what is the point of this why are you organizing all these papers all this stuff most people when they die even with wills leave a lot of question marks like what do we do with all this stuff in my case, I had this enormous amount of material that I had saved because I felt like it was important. Now, you might say important to who? Well, for starters, to fucking to me. That's who it was important to. But I think because of my interest in a particular part of the underground where culture was being created in real time, culture that will never be properly documented, never be properly 
understood by mainstream because it was culture that was in stood in um, in the face of mainstream. It was culture that grew in the shadow that if you expose it to the light of the mainstream is no longer underground. It's culture that would be it would be like a a a a, a network that once exposed to light dies. Right? It's like it's a it's a nutritious a mushroom that is filled with nutrition and properties that once exposed are, are rendered empty and void, right? Like have no have become negligible. So but that existed. That underground scene existed. It existed in a way that for someone like a kid from Kansas with his fucking mullet is listening comes across a piece of music and it's like, whoa, what is this? And then suddenly that life life changes. Like because it 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 opens up it opens up the door. You know, and the door and the door doesn't lead to another great band necessarily. It might lead to be to being a travel writer, right? Because suddenly the world, the, the grid that we had we had created for ourselves, or the grid that had been created for us to exist in, was blowed open. That's the point. Like that's what the underground. So I have this stuff. To me, I think it's important, but not important to American culture in the sense of the record industry, but important to the culture for all the generations of people who will come, who would like to, who I think would be important to know that, oh yeah, sometimes people do shit because it's the thing to do, not because they were trying to make money, right. not because they're trying to be famous, not because they wanted to be in a museum. Someday did it because it was the thing to do to feel connected to other human beings and to continue to celebrate the new idea. It will never stop. Punk will never die. It won't be called punk necessarily. It'll never die. But I think when you have a situation in which kids, literally kids, people under the age of 20 are forming their own bands, writing their own songs, putting on their own shows, putting on their own records, their own fanzine, creating entire ecosystems, communities, networks, where, you know, at 18 years old, I'm on the fucking phone to somebody from Reno who I'd never met before and becoming great friends with them. I know people all over the world now. Just because through this weird underground music that most people in this country will never even... I mean, Fugazi, for as famous as it might be for some, is completely unknown to others. And in fact, when you get right down to it, 99.9% .9 of the world will never hear of anything I've ever done. It does not matter. What matters is for people who are looking for some evidence that it, things like this can be done, hmm. that's the reason to organize it. Have you read any Grill Marcus? He wrote a book called... Actually, I read that... Lipstick Traces? Lipstick Traces, yeah. Yeah, I have it. I've never read it. The, well, there's a there's a personal story. It's part of my Fugazi story, actually. I've heard that Greg Ginn, is it Ginn? Mm -hmm. Ginn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Greg Ginn read about punk and decided that he wanted to create punk music. Like, he hadn't really heard it, but he read about the concept, and that was the seed of him moving. And then you read Lips of Traces as a kid? Yes. So I discovered Fugazi and some other bands, okay. and then Lipstick Traces connects punk to the Dada art movement of, right. of which the post-World War I. Which, of course, it is. Yeah. Right. And so that popped into my head while you were talking. And, yeah. he, I, and he uses he says that every once in a while, youth finds these undiffused bombs in the, in the, in the litter of culture, and it excites them, you know. 
I'm not quoting him perfectly, but there was this connection. It's the, it's the, the punk idea. He, he connected Dada art to the punk idea. Um, and so I guess we're slowly unpacking my convoluted question. Obviously, the archive serves personal memory, um, and you're very much a curator in real time of, of everything that's happened in the Discord house. Yeah, but it has another purpose. It's not that's not my personal memory. That's not to, that's not for my per, I, my personal memory is already there. I don't need those things. Well, then I guess there's what's the institutional memory of all this? What's how are you going to curate it in such a way that it's understood? When this is the data for I don't know if it's going to be understood. I can't. I mean, what happened in my brain is different than what happened in other people, other participants' brain. Right. So I can't say, I can't tell the story. I actually don't really believe in the narrative arc of history. The idea of leaving the evidence is not for, to tell the story. It's for people to see the evidence. Hmm. Like here's, like I just showed you this card from Dave Grohl. And that was, you know, that, I think that probably kind of was illuminating for you. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't tell you the story. I didn't tell you like, oh, this, that, and this, and the other thing. I just showed it to you. So maybe that there's aspects of it that are, you know, people can draw their own conclusions, you know. Well, that's a, I mean, that's a story that goes beyond music too. You know, that's about youth and becoming and, and right. you know, uh, and right. and. and it's reoccurring. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, I was not your age in 1992. Yeah. Um, and I was not a guy with a mullet in Wichita. Huh. But I was a kid, a skateboarder in D.C. listening to Ted Nugent. Yeah. And I don't have any, I have no regrets about it whatsoever. Um, what I can tell you about Ted Nugent and, and the 1970s rock and roll, that era where I was skateboarding, the reason, one of the reasons I skateboarded is because Music seemed completely out of reach. It seemed... As a musician? I was... I mean, I played piano since I, as long as I can remember. And I tried to figure out how to play guitar, but I couldn't understand it whatsoever. I couldn't make the... I couldn't transfer piano knowledge to the neck of a guitar. I could not understand how to play a guitar. It just didn't make sense to me what a chord was. I didn't understand that. But when I watched, you know... Like I listened to Jimi Hendrix or The Who or The Beatles, and I thought, oh, I want to play guitar. But it was completely, utterly out of reach. It would be as if you were, um, you know, you played, uh, you know, football with your friends, you even tackle football out in the yard or something, and then you look at the NFL and like, well, I can't do that. You know, it's just from a whole, it's, a, it's as if they are on a different they're in a different they are in a different strata and that's the way music was presented to me it was like there was nothing i could actually do and not only did i not know how they i didn't i wasn't where they were i didn't know how they could possibly get there like i didn't under, it didn't make it i'm from washington dc i didn't know any musicians i didn't know anything about rock and roll except that i liked listening to it i never really seen bands so i just thought well that's totally out of reach I mean, how would I, I wouldn't be able to do that any more than I would be able to be, you know, a king or a queen or, or, or a movie star. These are all completely, it's just different. So I thought, well, I'll, you know, what can I do at 15, 13 or 14 or 15? I think, well, I can skateboard. And the thing about being a skateboarder was at the time, that, that 70s era is when the urethane wheel came along. Skateboarding 
though it was thought of as like a yo-yo almost or a hula hoop, like a hobby, but it wasn't. Did you have one of those skinny boards? In the beginning, sure. Boards? Yeah, yeah. And then I had the fat ones, you know, went right. all. But skateboarding was not a hobby. And skateboarding certainly wasn't a sport. Like nobody took it seriously as a sport. And, but none of us thought of it as sports because sports were kind of, you know, they didn't, sports had no, we weren't trying to be competitive in that light. Skateboarding was a discipline. Because it was just a stick, a piece of wood with some wheels on it. You brought it to life. Right? You brought it to life. You're the one. Your investment is what made it more than a piece of wood with some wheels tacked, tacked onto it. What you did with it. What individually you did with it. With your friends. What you did socially with it. What you did with that skateboard. One thing skateboard for me. What a skateboard did for me was took me out of the party. You go to the high school party and everybody's like, we're going to get drunk. I'm like, later, we're going skating. I always had somewhere to be. Because skateboarding, we just go skateboarding. You go out in the middle of the night and the world was yours. You had a whole other world to look at. And skateboarding taught me how to redefine that world around me. So I think skateboarding as a discipline and as a something that knit me and my friends together, like my closest friend skateboarding, like Henry Garfield, Henry Rollins, right? That's our friendship was founded on skateboarding and, and listening to rock and roll together. Um, but those people, like yesterday, I, I visited with my friend Mark Sullivan, who was also like on the skateboard team with me. These are like super tight. We saw ourselves as outcasts from society, renegades who had found something to focus on that took us out of other people's affairs. And we had our own thing to do. Perfect training for punk rock. Because once punk came along, I started learning about it from my high school friends in 1978, really. And I'd seen it, the media's depiction of it, which was, you know, ridicule and, like, sensationalist. Um, but my friends got into it, and I remember saying, like, well, this, is, this music is weird sounding. It scares me. I don't like it. Um, and I hear that at parties. And then I kept arguing, oh, Ted Nugent's good and punk sucks. But then at some point... I really, they said, well, have you studied it? Have you actually listened to it? No. So I borrowed records. I listened to them. They, they were freaky sounding and scared. I, I've said this in many interviews, but I'll say it again, that if you grow up eating a hamburger and french fries for dinner every night, when someone puts down a bowl of rice, vegetable rice vermicelli in front of you, it doesn't look like or smell like or taste like dinner. But it is dinner for millions and millions and millions and millions of people, and it's probably better for you. It just takes that moment of learning how to switch your brain. I had already learned how to switch my brain by through skateboarding. Skateboarding is really place-based too. You know, going back yeah. to one of my obsessions. Actually, skateboarders make good travelers because they're not going to, you know, they're going to look at the obelisk at Place de la Concorde. They're not going to think about it as a tourist. They're going to figure out how to right, skate. Right. They're looking around. at everything differently. And to give you an idea of like the like impact, Rollins and I, we took a bus. To California in 1978, I was 16 and he was 17, by ourselves, we took a Greyhound bus to California to go see, to go skateboarding and to see skateboarders. This was pre... Um... Before the punk. Okay. Yeah, we were skateboarders. Huh. First time I ever heard it, Van Halen was in the back of a pickup truck outside the Upland uh, Pipeline Skate Park. What year was this? 1978. Okay. Summer of 78. We yeah. took a Greyhound bus there and back. That's a crazy ride for a 16, 17-year-old boys. No, I'm, I, um, I read Get in the Van 
Yes. It came out the year I was living in a van. I was traveling just to see America, living in a Volkswagen van. Um, and so it was, it was funny to make those comparisons. I didn't have rock shows to go to, but I had the same privation. Um, were, did you have similar experiences? Was there, like when Minor Threat was touring, did you have, were you hungry a lot? Were, was there a lot of sleeping five to a room? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny though. I had to say that <clears throat> Henry and I, are, I'm, he's really my one of my dearest friends. We talk almost every week. I love him deep, dearly, and I've known him since I was 11 years old. Um, but we're different people, you know. Oh yeah, no, you can you can tell. And I, when I read the book, I always kept thinking, "Well, get, get out of the van," you know. <laughs> it's like you know, get out of the van. It's just funny because, but Henry. Well, he gives you a shout out as sort of this voice of reason. Right. Like, he'll come back to D.C. And, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah that's uh, it. I mean, Henry, I love him so much. And the thing about him is that what's so incredibly admirable about the guy is that he wants to do well. And he works so hard. And he's really almost selfless in his work. Um, so the misery he was feeling was real. Like my response would have been like, I'm, out, I'm getting out of the van. Like I never would have done not because I wouldn't I don't I don't mind like I work hard, but I'm not gonna be like if somebody like in my in the immediate environment environment is if it's unhealthy, I'm not doing it. Well it felt like he needed that to perform. Yeah. He needed something to react against. There was some sort of It was part of, of the it's just part of it was part of the equation, for sure. Yeah. But it, like I had my own equation. Right. So my threat certainly it was you know, <clears throat> we toured and it was pretty, we probably made less money than Black Flag, frankly. Um, and I toured with Black Flag in 1981. Did you hear, Henry and I just did a radio show about it. No, yeah, for he, who? It was, uh, we know he has a radio show. Oh, for his radio show. Yeah, so okay. every every time, I, every year, um, Amy, my partner Amy and my, our son Carmine, we go out to California every April. Just like our sojourn. And every time I'm out there, I always try to do a show with Henry. Uh-huh. So I've done been on a radio show once a year. This year, I thought let's do let's talk specifically about the 1981 December 81 Black Flag UK tour in which I was a roadie. I, yeah. It's in the book, but yeah. now you get to hear my side yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. I kept a journal, so I had a journal of the whole okay. thing. So it was really good to talk. And so it's on now. You can find it. He sure. sort of hated it, right? Uh, Henry didn't I mean, care much for the for the UK. I mean, there's a lot of sour... Yeah, I mean, that's just the tone. Yeah. I, I mean, it was... I mean, pretty hateable, frankly. The situation was so crazy. Because we got there, and the band we were supposed to tour with canceled the tour. So we were... Which band was that? The Exploited. Oh, The Exploited, yeah. Which would, would have been even more horrible had we actually done the tour. <laughs> they still make music. Yeah, they still... Waddy yeah. had a heart attack on stage. When? Five years ago. But he still plays... Okay. Um. Yeah, so they he hurt his ankle supposedly. They canceled the tour, so then suddenly there was no tour. So Black Flag was just picking up shows the last minute. Huh. It was so strange, and um, we had no money, and we got our what we got every day: two rolls, a hunk of cheese, and an apple. From who? From Greg and Chuck. Okay. Huh. They were like the meisters. They were like the they were the proctors of the band, right? right? They were the bosses. Right. 
Actually, Greg Ginn, Chuck Dukowski. So they would give. Did they Chuck would, drive? Did he drive the van? I was the first one. To, he did. But okay. in England, I was the first one to drive. Right. Because they were too freaked out yeah. to drive on the wrong side of the road. Right. So they asked me to do it. I mean, it was insane. But yes, I mean, I think for most people, if I tell the story when I did, like people are like, I can't believe you did that. But the time was like, that's life. That's the thing about touring is like the moments you're going into the moment. Like you're not waiting for them to come to you, right? So like you're in the moment. And there's circumstances. But I think about some of the forgotten. I mean, Fugazi toured super hardcore. We played over a thousand shows. We did a lot of touring. And our touring was sometimes, it was sketchy what we were up against. You know, we would do, you know, 65 shows in 70 days or something all over Europe. And you have no idea what you might run into. Were you sleeping in friendly houses? Sometimes friendly, sometimes yeah. not so friendly. Yeah. Were you able to enjoy Europe or was it sort of a work trip? Why they have to be separate? Well, I mean, that's... Um... I've never gone as a tourist. Right. But I, I love the world that way. I like to have a job. I, I want to see the kitchen. Yeah. That's me. I prefer... I. I've actually, I, it's very hard for me. I've never really vacated. Right. I just think when I, I remember when I was reading Henry's book that every once in a while he would, he could be sour, but then he suddenly you could tell he was appreciating where he was, you know. Henry's an incredible traveler and he does oh. appreciate, he does appreciate, even then I think he was like the world's, it's just, I mean, we had a reason to be somewhere. Yeah. I mean, most of, I mean, you, tra you're a travel writer. Yeah. So you, I assume that you've been. If you've been in Asia, you've probably seen like hordes of Dutch or Germans or whatever, sure. and you're like, yeah. and they're just like, oh, no, we're it's our playground. But that's not, that's not so. You're, you, I don't imagine you think of it as your playground. No, I mean there's an there's an extent to which that I'm working. Oh, you you're trip. working, right? You, I'm not not an extent. You are working. Yeah, yeah. So like for me, I can remember like Fugazi would be on tour, and we'd be in Italy, on the Autostrada, right? Their highway system. And have you traveled through Italy? Sure. Yeah. Okay, so you know when you pull off the autostar, you go to the rest area, and the rest areas are like insanely fancy, super nice, right? So we would stop to get a cup of tea and get gas and take a piss, whatever, and have a little maybe a bite to eat or something. And inevitably, a bus would pull in, and all these American tourists would get off. And the way their their tourist energy was so humiliating as an American, we would just keep our mouths shut. We didn't, we wanted to be just part of the world. We didn't want to be, we didn't want to be, um, we didn't want to see the world as a, as a snow globe that we weren't in. We wanted to be in the globe, you know. Sure. Yeah. I think growing up in Washington, D.C. made us hypersensitive to that. This is a tourist town. Yeah. This is the and, first time I flew, I flew here. My right. Ninth grade trip to D.C. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, was it a uh, outward bound no, was it, it was oh, like no, no, a uh, junior high civics class. Was it, uh, but then it wasn't part of a program like the. They used to have a name for them. I because every spring I get these kids, ninth grade kids and two, high school kids would call me up and say, "I'm in town. I can't really, really get." Yeah, they might sneak out of their hotel or something. <laughs> it um, was it was basically the same yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. know if it was that word bound. But the point is that like I like, I'm not. I think I'm a little traumatized by tourists growing up in Washington. Because there's so many people come and you just sort of, they just become like, look at that. They're just pointing and not. Herds of. Right. They see, yeah, they're just in a different place. And I think that, I feel like the world, if you are, if you go, if you go looking, 
if you go staring or um, ogling or sightseeing, yeah, if it's like, but if that's the t- the tonality of it, then the world behaves differently. If you go just as part of the world, you see something that you don't get to see otherwise. And I think being in a band gives you this incredible opportunity to, because you're working and you get to be. So have I, like, I've not been, for instance, to I'll name most landmarks, but I've seen them driving by. Right. But I fucking, I've been grocery shopping in, you know, Bergen, Norway. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've done that. And that's pretty cool. You know, I've gotten gas in, you know, Dunedin and New Zealand. You know, I've done that. I've done, I have these really intense experiences in my life, traveled all over the world, but I go, I'm working. And I don't, and I, and the other thing about it is like, is that I'm the one, like, we did it. We weren't, we didn't, we weren't being handled. We were the handlers. Well, it gives you a pretext too. It's like skateboarding. If you, if if you bring your skateboard to Berlin, then you're going to meet. Berliner skateboarders, right. you know, if you bring your band to Berlin, you're going to meet musicians, you're going to meet fans, right. things You have like a that. reason to go somewhere. Yeah. Exactly. Have you talked to Henry about his recent travelers, travels? Of course. Because he's a, he's the real deal. I mean, he'll... Oh, he is the real deal. That dude always has a list. He has a list of all the no-fly zones, and he goes. Yeah. That's his thing. North Korea, he's been to Myanmar, he goes everywhere. No, he's, he's, yeah, he's spoken really intelligently. I've traveled a lot, but yeah. you listen to him talk about travel, and it's clear that he has an intuitive level, yeah. sort of him and his camera wandering the it's earth. It's great. Have you seen his, his slideshow he does? I've seen his book. Yeah, this, um, the book is great. Yeah. This, he did a slideshow tour where he showed the photos, and mm-hmm. it's brilliant. He's always been that way, too. When I first met him, he'd already, his mom used to take him. They used to travel all the time. Okay. So he'd been, like, his passport was stamped. By the time I met him, in twelve, right? Like I didn't leave the country until I went to England, okay, in nineteen eighty-one. I was nineteen years old. Yeah, I've never been overseas before that. But boy, my th- boy, that changes when you start to travel. You start to understand the world a whole other way. Yeah, I remember when being in England and looking at the television, and there was a uh, "Let's Make a Deal" or some prices right in England. Yeah. Okay. But it was like. It was a Price is Right or some same, uh, um, a game show. Right. That was their, it was a British version of it. It was like the British host and the British people and the British products. And I'm watching it and I'm thinking, this is so fucking moronic. <laughs> and I realized, oh, it's moronic here too. Yeah. But... I didn't know that because I'd only been eating that. So I didn't know that it tasted stupid. It was the water you swam in. Right. And that's when you start traveling. You start recognizing that over and over and over and over again. There's no question that because I think the geographic component of of North America and specifically the United States of America's sort of monopolization of that concept of North America, leaving out Mexico and Canada. But this idea that... It's so the xenophobia that is, comes as a result of that, which is understandable, because you were on an island, we're on an island of of of, of monocultural island that's getting increasingly more monocultural. Um, that the rest of the world seemed unreal, and I can remember being a child, and just like you know, 
I, you know, not, I don't know if I actually prayed at night. Probably I did in some way. But I remember thank, you know, having to be, give thanks and just thanking God that I was an American over and over and over because I couldn't imagine what poor smuck would have been the fucking born in, you know, Germany or born in Japan with these poor losers because here I was in the greatest country in the history of the, of the world. And, and then I realized that there's little kids in those countries praying the same exact goddamn thing about their country. But I had to go there to realize that. And once you realize, like, oh, then we're one thing. Yeah. I get it. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Discord Records and its digital archive of live Fugazi shows, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by myself and Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. I'm not-